We're starting a new series today about life groups. I want to introduce to you Jason and Brittany Sutherland, and they're going to tell you a little bit about their experience with the small group ministry here at Alliance Bible Fellowship. Thanks, Glenn. Well, it's a great opportunity just to be able to stand in front of you today and talk a little bit about the community that you find in a life group, a small group, life group. And uh, over the past eight years, well, eight years ago, Brittany and I, or around eight years ago, Brittany and I came to Alliance. And one of the first things we did was to join a, at that time, small group, now being called Life Group. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to get plugged in and involved. I look over the crowd here this morning and I see a lot of faces that we made that are now wonderful friends that we met early on in that process. Well, for about the past four years or so, we've had the opportunity to lead a Life Group. So once a week, we come together, we grow in our faith, we share things with one another, provide accountability for one another, and we just have a good time. It's really a great time of fellowship. So on Sunday mornings, we have an opportunity each week to come and be able to hear solid scriptural teaching. And once a week at night, whenever we come together with our life group, we have a great opportunity to come and really have a chance to put our faith into action. So what does that faith in action look like? Um, well, for me, I came to Alliance from a church of 200 to this group of 1,000. So needless to say, on Sunday mornings at Alliance, I was a little bit overwhelmed. But on Monday nights at 6 o'clock, Alliance became small. And my small group became my church family. And the more we met, the more we grew closer together. And it wasn't just a place, like Jason said, where we had good biblical teaching. But we also had a chance to share our hopes, our fears, and our dreams. And so for the past eight years, we've hosted birthday parties and graduation parties. We've packed boxes and painted walls for those that are moving into new apartments. We've prayed for financial needs, for physical needs, uh, for those that needed new jobs. Uh, we've had wedding showers, and this year our first baby shower. Uh, so to say the least, life happens in small group. And so I think it's so appropriate that we are changing our names from small groups to life groups. So if you're not involved in a group, I challenge you to get involved because it will definitely change your life. Thank you. About 15 years ago, I discovered Anne of Green Gables. It was a cold, rainy, depressing, gray Kentucky Sunday afternoon, and my wife and I went down to the video store. I realize that dates me just a little bit that we would have gone to a store to rent a video. We went down and picked up this three-hour movie about Anne of Green Gables, and I cried through the whole thing. And it was so wonderfully depressing that my wife told me that there was another movie at the store called Anne of Avonlea. And so we rented that and spent another three hours with my wife watching me cry as Anne went about her journeys. I even found at my grandmother's house this 1935 edition of Anne of Green Gables. I confess I've not read the books. I've only watched the movies. I suspect there's some readers in the, in the room here that like the books. In one of the novels, in one of her books, the author tells a story about this church lady named Aunt Atossa. And Aunt Atossa is this cranky old woman. And at her church on Sunday nights, they have a practice of sharing prayer requests. And maybe you've been in churches like this where people can stand up and share a prayer need or share a praise report and then sit back down. And this was the case at Anatasa's church. On this particular Sunday night, there was a guest pastor 
who was almost deaf, could, could hardly hear a word anyone was saying. As people would share their requests, he would lean in and smile and nod, having no real clue what they were saying. Well, Aunt, At- Aunt Atassa was the kind of woman who had been storing up bitterness her entire life. You know people like this, right? They just keep storing and adding and it's building. And on this particular night, the dam broke and it all came out. Anatasa stood up and she began to share all of her grievances with every single person in this church, stuff that had been building for years. She practically called everyone by name, telling them what was wrong with them and how they had failed her in the church. And some of the things that she shared was so deep and, and, and I guess juicy would be the right word, that several of the women even fainted as their lies were exposed. After just abusing everyone in the church, Anatasa, she said, I am so disgusted with this church. After tonight, I doubt I'll ever come back. May God bring His fearful judgment on all of you. And the guest pastor who could hardly hear leaned in and he said, May the Lord grant our sister's request. (laughs) You've been in churches like this, haven't you? Maybe where uh, there wasn't as much love to go around. Churches where there have been backbiting and problems and, and well, just junk. You know, one of the complaints that I, I hear often from people outside of the church and even people in the church is, is sometimes the level of hypocrisy can be just disappointing as we see Christians misbehaving. I was at a conference and I heard one pastor who had preached at the church for 10 years and then there was a nasty split. He said, I've never seen so many well-taught people behave so poorly. Reality is, we're all imperfect, aren't we? I mean, none of us have arrived and Jesus is still working on all of us. And even in the church, we find that that it's not always the way we would like it to be. Pastor Bill Hybels wrote a book about church leadership. And he says in the book, he says, there is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Isn't that true? When the church is working the way God intended it to work, there's nothing like it. He says, he says when it's working right, its, it's beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, and the disillusioned. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. The radical message of transforming love has been given to the church. I agree with Pastor Hybels that there is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Despite all of its problems, the church is still the hope of the world. The church is still God's plan A for taking the love of Christ to the nations. And as Bill Hybels has often said, there's not a plan B. This is God's plan for sharing the love of Jesus with others. And despite all of its problems, despite all of our shortcomings, this is God's plan. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 2. We're going to look at Acts 2, 38 through 47. In the Gospels, Jesus promised that he would build his church. 
And one of the things that Jesus says about his church is the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell cannot stop the advancing of God's kingdom through the local church. And Jesus says he is the one who is building his church. And I believe the church is still the hope of the world. As one of my friends says, despite whatever problems we see in the church, be careful in how you talk about the church because the church is still Jesus' bride. This is still the bride of Christ. Warts and junk and all. We read in Acts 2 about the birth of the first church. Jesus tells his disciples to wait and pray until they receive the Holy Spirit. And then Luke records in the book of Acts how this first church is born and literally turns the world upside down. Listen to Acts 2, 38 through 47. Peter, the Holy Spirit has just descended on the early Christians and Peter develops this boldness that he's never had before and he stands up and he preaches, proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises and he calls people to repent. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Peter preaches this bold sermon, and in one day, 3,000 people are added to the church. 3,000 new followers of Jesus. And these new followers, they're so excited, and this love that they found is so contagious that as you read through the book of Acts, you see the, the gospel spreading like wildfire. People coming to Christ on a daily basis. Church historians say that by about 300 A.D., before Constantine makes Christianity legal, by 300 A.D., in the midst of intense persecution, the church grows to about 14 million followers, even before it's made legal. How is it that the church was able to do this? What caused the church to grow so rapidly and so powerfully? I'll give you a hint. It had something to do with what was going on in the lives of believers. It had something to do with, with what was going on inside of this little gospel community of followers of Jesus. Look at some of the things they were devoted to. It's in Acts 2.42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This early group of Christians founded their belief, they founded their faith on the truth of Scripture. Their experience was not the base of their
It was based on the truth of what was taught in God's Word. And it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, I know today it's easy for us to think of a lot of people sitting and learning. And this is really not the picture of the early church. When the Bible says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, it means they were devoted to living what Scripture taught. They were devoted to learning this teaching and then allowing it to change their lives from the inside out. They were impacting their community. Their theology led them to mission, to action. And so when we read that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, it means they're devoted to living out this truth, to living the reality of the gospel. And it affected their lives, and it affected the lives of others. They were also devoted to fellowship. Now this word fellowship, I think, is one of these Christian words. It's become a Christian buzzword that's really gotten watered down quite a bit. And I know I need to be careful because it is the last name of our church, Alliance Bible Fellowship. But we often use the word fellowship to refer to the hangout time before the worship and teaching starts, or we might refer to the fellowship time of our small group where there's coffee and snacks and we hang around and talk a little bit before the teaching and prayer. But really, that's the idea of fellowship in the Bible. It's so much deeper than that, so much deeper. When it says the early church was devoted to the fellowship, it it means that they were very intricately involved in each other's lives. They were a part of each other's lives so that no one felt alone. No one struggled alone. No one went through life by themselves. They had each other's backs. And they were devoted, committed to fellowship with one another, which was so much more than than hanging out together. It meant that they were a support system for each other. They were involved in lives. You know, in the Bible, uh, you read in... The Old Testament. Well, let me, let, me, let me just illustrate it this way. In the New Testament, there are about 59 commands that have the words one another in them. Do this to one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Instruct one another. So many commands that the Bible calls us to do to each other, and they can only be fulfilled as we're involved in each other's lives. And the early church was committed to this. They were committed to the fellowship It says they were committing to the breaking of bread. And this is more than than getting together and eating casserole. This is is symbolic of, this, this means they were practicing regularly the Lord's Supper. When the early church got together, they broke bread. And and they had wine and they remembered the suffering and, and the death of Jesus. This was an integral part of their community. When they came together, they, want, they reminded themselves that their community was based on something greater than themselves. It ultimately centered around the work of Christ. And they reminded themselves regularly. Communion, it was not a, a once-a-year practice or a once-a-quarter practice. In fact, they likely did it every day as they met in their homes. It wasn't a stale religious custom. This was their life. This communicated that Jesus was central, that Jesus was empowering everything that they did. It communicated their dependence on Him. And it says they were devoted to the prayers. What does this mean? It's not so much a book of prayers or a commitment in general to prayer, but probably a commitment to the Jewish practice of of going to the temple each day at 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They would, would actually go to the temple 
for the purpose of praying. You see this all the time throughout Acts. Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray and and some ministry takes place. And it seems like this is something that the early Christians continued to practice. They didn't throw out this Jewish practice of regular daily prayer at 9 and at 3. And it says they were devoted to it, committed. It's no wonder, why would we be surprised with their commitment to prayer that they impacted the community in the way that they did? And why would we be surprised that their lives were so transformed with their commitment to regular daily prayer? As these early followers devoted themselves to these four things, radical stuff began to happen in their lives and in their communities. And mainly that is they began to take care of each other. Acts 2, it says that no one had a need, that no one lacked anything. Those who had an abundance began to sell things and give money to the poor. And they didn't just take care of the poor among them, they took care of the poor in their society. They took care of of anyone who had a need. I know some people have used this passage to say that the early Christians practiced a form of socialism. I don't think there's any need to, to conclude here that they all shared a common purse and put their money together. I think it's simply saying they took care of each other. No one had needs. Those who had extra gave to those who had lack. And they didn't just take care of themselves. They took care of the poor and the needs of society. Historian Will Durant, he wrote an 11-volume series titled The History of Civilization. I've not read it, but periodically I go to Amazon and look at it just because it looks like it would be fun to try to read someday. Maybe never. The History of Civilization. Will Durant, he says, the reason Christians triumphed over paganism is because their leaders did a better job of dealing with human needs. And these early Christians triumphed over their pagan neighbors because they actually met the needs of those in their community. We were in Japan last month with a little team from this church. We were planning to go to Africa. We got redirected to Japan. And I'm standing in this room tearing down drywall and taking out drywall screws from the wall one by one. And the Japanese use a lot of screws. And I'm taking these out and I'm thinking, why am, what am I doing? What am I doing on the other side of the world with a drill taking out drywall screws? How is this ministry to anyone? Later that day, our translator talked to the homeowner, and he told the homeowner that I was a pastor. And this really, this really moved me and motivated me for the rest of the trip. The homeowner said, you'd never get a Buddhist monk to come out and do this. And his statement was, I can't even get someone from my own religion to come out and help. But here are Christians coming halfway around the world to take drywall screws out of my house. Tertullian was an early church author, lived around the third century. And this is what he said about the early Christians. He said, it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. What branded the early church was the way their their gospel community impacted the world around them, particularly in meeting the needs of the poor, the broken, the downcast, the left out. It made an impact on their world. It communicated that there was something different about this church that was born in Acts 2. That this church, this gospel, actually meets human needs. We could use... Two words to describe what's going on in the book of Acts in chapter 2. We could call it gospel community. 
Often we use the word community in church, and it's a very apt word. But all sorts of people gather and have community who are not Christians. And we add the word gospel community. It communicates that we center around one thing in common, and that is the gospel of Jesus. If you were to put all the people together who call Alliance Bible Fellowship their church home from first service, second service, third service, you find that there's a lot of different kind of folks who go here. We're not all cut out of the same mold. But we all have one thing in common. And there's one reason that we gather, and that is because of the gospel. Gospel community. One of our contemporary problems in the United States is that we are becoming increasingly isolated and very individualistic. In the year 2000, a book was published titled Bowling Alone. This was written by a Harvard University, Harvard University professor who he and his team conducted interviews of 500,000 people living in the United States. And his conclusion was overwhelming that we live alone, that we've gotten accustomed to, to operating in our own little bubbles. It's so easy to, to come home and drive into the driveway, press a button, the garage door opens, we drive in, the door closes behind us. It's possible to go years and never even see a neighbor. And he says our culture is moving increasingly toward individualism. Now in the first century they didn't have this problem because their culture was a very relationally driven culture. And so it was much easier for them to interact as a community. For us it becomes an extra challenge because everything about our lives pulls us toward being individuals. Now here's a thought about the gospel. Is often you hear people say, well my faith, my faith is, is private. You know, I have my faith, my relationship with God. I would want to say to that, I would want to say that while faith is certainly personal, it's never meant to be private. God always deals with people in community. You go back to the Old Testament, some 25 times God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And all throughout Scripture, God deals with us as people. And even though our faith is certainly personal, it's not private. It's meant to be lived together. We are wired by God for community. We are wired by God to resist this part of our culture that, that leads us toward isolation and to come together. It's in our wiring. It's the way God has made us. We often hear this complaint in our church, and in this church we hear, I just can't seem to get connected. Or I come and it's so hard to, it's hard to meet people. I don't feel like I know anybody. A lot of people like, like Brittany shared, they come from churches of, of 200 or fewer. In fact, about 80% of churches in the United States have 200 or less in attendance. And so to come here in this large room, is, it's overwhelming. And, and people often say, it's just so hard, it's hard to connect with other people. But you know what? It's in our wiring to connect. It's in our wiring to know and to be known. One writer, he says, each of us hides an awful secret. Buried deep within every human soul throbs a muted pain that never goes away. The silent churning at the core of our being is the tormenting need to know and be known. Even the shyest quietest person in this room is wired by God to know and to be known. God has put it in each of us. And as a church, we have to correct this problem 
of people coming and not feeling a part of the family. One of the metaphors the Bible uses to describe the church is the family of God. And we don't need people coming into the family who feel like they don't belong. There's a subset of the elders. We get together about every six weeks to talk about our small group ministry. It's made up of John Hanna, Andy Blavat, David Ellington, and myself. And we get together about every six weeks and talk about small group stuff. And, and back in November, some light bulbs came on. We started brainstorming with some pretty new ideas for us here. And, and they were kind of so maybe what we thought of as radical that we said, let's pray about this for a few months. Let's sit on it. Let's keep meeting. Let's keep praying about it. Let's not get in a rush, but, but let's talk about it. And at the heart of this conversation was, how do we get people connected? How do, we, how do we make a large church into a small church? How do we help people find a place at the table of community? And as we began talking, Andy Blavat raised the question. He said, do you think we could call the ministry something that describes more about it than the fact that it's small? Would there be another word that we could use? And we came up with the word life. Well, we could call them life groups because that communicates at least more than they're small. It communicates that this is where life happens. This is where we do life together. This is where life grows. The, the life of the gospel grows in us. A lot of churches use the term life groups. It's nothing super original. But it communicates something. And then we added a tagline. We said, let's add something that communicates even more. Living the gospel through intentional community. We thought we want to really communicate real clearly what this ministry is supposed to be about. And we put, first of all, it's about living the gospel. It's not about, we, church is not about learning more information about who God is. Yes, it's about learning, but it's also about living this truth. And we put that in there. And then we thought, you know what? Our culture is so individualistic, we actually have to be intentional about building community. The early church would have laughed at this little mission statement. Intentional community? You have to be intentional. Well, we do because of our culture. And we wanted to put it right out front that we feel like as a church, this is something we have to be intentional about. It's not accidentally going to happen. After the tagline, we started talking about the core values of the ministry. And our small group ministry already had five core values, but they were so complicated I couldn't even remember what they are. And I guarantee you, if I can't remember them, then you don't remember them. And so we said it's got to be simple. And it needs to be something that can be remembered and really communicates what we want to be about. And after some weeks of discussion, we came up with, in this order, belong, become, bless. What do we want life groups to be about? Belonging, becoming, and blessing. We feel like everybody in the church can remember these three words. This can fit on a bumper sticker. could fit on a t-shirt. Not that we would make those, but it's memorable. Be belong, become, bless. In that order. Belong speaks to gospel community. The grace and truth of the gospel places us in community. God deals with us as people in community. And so part of the, the, the goal of our life group ministry is this would be a place where people know who you are. People know your name. People notice when you're not there. It's gospel community. Community centered around the work of Jesus. Become. Become speaks to gospel growth. The gospel calls us to grow and become new creations. 
And part of the goal of this ministry is not just to be a, a hangout place where people know us, but a place where as we interact with each other and as we interact with the truth of Scripture, our lives are transformed. It's gospel growth. There should be a slide for that. One of the things that we've done, we feel like there's a great teaching here on Sunday morning. And Scott Andrews would even be the first to say that it is very challenging in 30 to 35 minutes to, to give you lots of application ideas. In fact, some ways, sometimes I even feel like to give an application idea limits your application because you feel like, well, that's the one way to apply this. And there could be a thousand ways to apply a passage. It's hard to do in the sermon, but it's easy to do in a life group. And so one of the things we've, we offer up as a tool to you is we have a team of writers who've been, they've been doing this for several months now, writing application-based questions from the Sunday service. Not questions that rehearse what did Scott talk about, but questions that take you deeper in applying. And we're offering this as a tool. We're not obligating anyone to use these, but they're available. You could use these as a family. You could use these even individually to look at later in the day. Our goal is to get them up by 2 o'clock on Sunday. Uh, so far, we've been getting them up during third service. So they'll be there right after church. So you can go and read about, how do I live this? How do I apply this? And then bless speaks to gospel mission. The grace and truth of the gospel puts us right in the middle of the mission of God. God is a God who is on mission. And as a church, to become inwardly focused, we lose touch with the mission that God has called us to. God has called us to go outward with this truth that is changing our lives. And even in our life groups, as tempting as it is to want to wanna huddle in, we're called to have an outward focus. And one of the core values of the life group ministry is it wouldn't be just about us, but somehow, and groups have the freedom to figure out what that looks like, but somehow the group would be about being a blessing to others in the way that God calls us to be a blessing. As we kept talking, we said, you know, it's really a challenge to recruit leaders and it's a challenge to get people connected in groups. And part of that challenge is the way our system is set up, if you commit to lead a group, you're basically committing until Jesus comes back. Or if you commit to be in a group, you're basically committing until Jesus comes back or someone in the group makes you terribly angry. Then you can leave. We thought that's, that's a little bit of a challenge. <clears throat> and so we said, what if we just put it out as a 10-month commitment and said, would you commit to be an intentional community for 10 months. After that, there's a window, there's a door out. If you're a leader, you can say, I, I did my 10-month commitment. If the group's not working out so well, you could say, you know, 10 months, uh, we're out. Now, our heart in this is not to force anyone to ever break up. Some, some have expressed concern. What sounds like you're saying at 10 months, you're going to disband our group. No, we actually like it if you like each other and want to keep meeting, okay? That's a good thing. If you say, we like it so much, we want to continue practicing intentional community. But there's a door, there's an out at the end of 10 months. We decided that every July and August, we want to make a big push, a big emphasis on life groups so that it's real easy to know how to sign up. Starting next week, it says in the bulletin this week, but starting next week, there are going to be literal sign-up sheets with real pencils that you can write your name down underneath a leader's name. And you can sign up to be in a group. We want to make it that easy for you to get connected. Now, this is simply meant to be a plan 
to help disconnected people get connected. It's not our intention to force anybody to do anything. That's never the goal. Our goal is simply to make it easy for people to get connected. This is a problem that has to be, has to be fixed in our church. Let me close with this. The early church lived in intentional community. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to breaking bread together, to the fellowship. And they radically began to transform their community around them as the gospel began to change them from the inside out. Their pagan neighbors and pagan community took notice of what was happening in their lives. They literally turned the world upside down. And we believe this kind of thing can happen as we commit to live together in intentional community. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, when he calls on them to to repent, they ask, what do we do? And he says to them, repent and be baptized. And today we have some folks coming to be baptized. Often we talk about baptism as being a symbol of our sins being washed away. And that is indeed a biblical image of being buried with Christ and raised to new life. But you know what else the church has historically seen baptism as being? Being baptized into community. While what's going on here today is very personal, it's not private. These people are being baptized into the community of faith. And as they get in position, I want to pray for us and pray that God would help us to be the kind of place where people find a seat at the table of community. God, we love you and we're grateful for the work that you've done in our lives. We're grateful for the work that you've done in these these brothers and sisters that are getting baptized today. I want to pray for us as a church that you would help us to overcome the barriers of helping people get connected and experience gospel community, gospel growth, and gospel mission. And will you empower us to do this? It's in your name we pray. Amen.